Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello, and welcome again to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is David Siegel from Meetup. David, say hello to the audience and tell us a little about yourself. Hello to the audience. Most important thing about myself is that I am on the Genius at Scale podcast, a lifelong dream, and I'm finally on it, so I'm so excited. So I am the uh, CEO of Meetup. Meetup is the world's largest platform for finding and building community. We have 62 million members and 260,000 communities. If you don't know us, check us out. Before that, I was the CEO of a company called Investopedia, which is the world's largest platform for investor education. For that, president of Seeking Alpha, early employee at DoubleClick, wrote a book called Decide and Conquer, and most importantly, have three amazing children and an amazing wife. Oh, that's great. Wow, you're ticking all the boxes. That's great. <laughs> gotta keep busy, you gotta scale, you gotta scale. Scale family. Yeah, there, there you go. Scale your time, you know it, you name it. <laughs> that's great, that's great. And I'm especially excited to have you on the show because one of the questions we have for everyone is how do you define or measure scale, but you're building a community or a movement, or how would you describe what you're scaling? Wow, that's a really good question. Okay, so when I originally thought about scale, I did think in the business context. From Meetup's perspective, scale is in the context of what the addressable audience potentially is. So what I mean by that is the number of people who play basketball is a lot more people on Meetup than that probably do bobsledding in general in the world, especially let's say in the United States. So if I think about scale, scaling for bobsledding in the US might be a thousand people versus building a community around basketball in the US would not be a thousand, it would be a much, much greater number. So I do think that scaling is in the context of what the addressable audience of the number of potential people could be. I also think scaling isn't necessarily a good thing I think scaling is often perceived as a positive, but scaling can be just as much negative as positive, and it could be very negative, you know, for that matter as well. How do you measure it? Do you measure for the impact or for the feedback you get from the participants? Or? So for Meetup, our number one KPI around scale is the number of connections that are made on our platform. So every year, our goal, our key KPI is not revenue, it's not profit, but it's to hit over 30 million connections between people. So we actually can measure that. So a connection can be if someone came to our platform and they chatted with each other before or after an event. They came to an event and there were six people at the event and they left a rating afterwards. It was a positive rating and positive feedback that means that they actually did go to that event. So we actually track the number of connections that are made because Meetup's general goal is to cure the loneliness epidemic, to help people to connect with other people. So for us, scaling is the opportunity to help people meet others that share their passion and interest that they may not have met without our platform. That's us as scaling. That's, it's ironic. My wife and I were at a jazz concert at a winery we went to, and we went there last year. We're in wine country, sort of. We're in the Bay Area and there's lots of wine. Mm -hmm. But the meetup was kind of a dud. 
It was just the wrong people showed up, but the wine was nice. We had a nice day, but we learned from the winery that they do this jazz thing and it was sold out last year. So a year later, last night, we had tickets and went, and it was absolutely magical. 200 people only and a really high end. Yeah, it was great. And you think, and we were laughing because we took friends and they said, how'd you find this place? We said, we did it on a meetup last year. And they said, do you use meetup? We said, yeah, we do some meetup stuff and it's, you know, sometimes hit or miss and you get what you get. And sometimes we have fun, but it, it was, it was a year later that it still had impact. And we were kind of thanking the people. We don't even remember who they were, but we were thanking the people who brought us to that. We would have never gone to that winery otherwise. Amazing. Yeah. People meet, have new experiences and then, and that's a scaling connection, but they also meet, you know, one of my favorite stories at meetup regarding scale and connections is an organizer that I met. And one of the things he said is he has two meetup groups. One of his meetup groups is a bowling group. And the other meetup group that he has is a, like a career networking group. And he said, you're not going to believe this, but I've gotten my last two jobs from my bowling group. <laughs> and I met like my best friend at the career networking group. So the whole idea of scaling connections is that there's a serendipitous moment that happens when people get together, whether at a winery and a jazz club, or whether it's at a bowling event and you can end up finding a new job or at a current networking event and finding your, your loved one. And another best friend of mine, another close friend of mine, he met his wife playing softball. So you just don't know what kind of things can happen when you have those connections. And for us, you know, the ability to drive connections, it can drive career success. It could drive romantic success. It could drive financial success, all these other different things that could come from it, or just a great evening. But the pain point that you're, my word, not yours, the pain point you're really looking to address is, the, is loneliness. Oh, absolutely. So statistics. So the Surgeon General just recently came out with a report around loneliness in the, in, in the United States, and it's just terrifying stats. So 46% of people, not sometimes, not occasionally, but regularly feel lonely in the U.S., and obviously COVID exacerbated those issues, both because behaviorally for a long time, people were not communicating, not getting out. And you would think when people don't get out, they, they're like desperate to get out. And some people did, but there were other people that got into a behavioral pattern that they were not as used to going out. And now it's taking them a while to get back out and doing things. And obviously social media plays a, you know, a negative role in people's inclinations around getting out, doing things and you know, the, the loneliness challenges in this world. 46% is unbelievably high. Yeah. And it's much higher among Gen Zers than any other group. The second highest group is millennials and the least lonely group are people who are, are baby boomers. So the older you are, the less lonely you are. And it comes down to communal institutions. So for example, church, synagogue, mosque, temples, Oh, right. You go to church, you go to church or synagogue. Sure. You know, yeah. you're going to those communal institutions. And there's less loneliness. People are in their 50s, 60s, 70s are much more apt to go to those types of institutions than people in their 20s and 30s. It's just a fact. But it's not just religious institutions. There's other institutions. There's, there's lots of things that people used to be a part of in terms of communities where there's PTAs, which used to be much more active, or bowling groups. You mentioned bowling earlier used to be more active, and that just don't exist today. And so instead of going to a pub and watching Monday night football, people are playing fantasy football and not leaving the basement. Many people are hopefully still going to pubs, but not as many as certainly used to. 
Fantasy sports is a way to connect. Video games is a way that people actually do use to connect with others. And I still think it's better to do fantasy sports if you're into sports than, and from your basement than to not do any type of connection vehicles at all. But, you know, one of the things that people say about soda isn't great for you, but what's worse about soda is that it replaces drinking water, which is really important for your hydration and really good for you. So similarly, when people spend a lot of their time playing, let's say, video games or social media or fantasy sports, it's not that those things are inherently so bad for you. It's that they take up time that could be spent in having more direct IRL, in-person type, meaningful connections with others. Yeah. It's funny, Mike. I know you, your kids are just about leaving the nest, and one has already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of mine have, but one of them is in six fantasy football leagues, and two of them, they meet for a weekend to do their draft, like they all go away and there's 16 of these guys and they rent an Airbnb and it's a barbecue and cornhole and- That's awesome. Right, and so they're like blood brothers and then it makes the league more fun because they're trash talking all week because I play you this week. So it's just a, it's just an excuse for me to trash talk with you. And they're thick as thieves, but then he's in others that he said, I need to be in this one because it's my work league. And if you're not in it, you're like an outcast. So I do it. but. It's more of a chore. And I, I'm like, really? You're in six leagues? That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but those, those annual rituals are so powerful. It's amazing how once a year you could get together with the 16 people. And like you said, you could be blood brothers, blood sisters. You could be so incredibly close with people. And just ritualizing community and connections is just incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's great. Again, you because you're, you're an outlier in terms of even the CEO prototype. Tell us about your background, because you don't come from, you don't come from a, if you will, a classic CEO background. Tell us a little about your background and how you ascended to the CEO role. Yeah, okay. So I started off in human resources, which is not the most common path to become. (laughs) It's the wrong division. There's no, you just don't see it. Yeah, no, you do not see many people that go from HR to CEO. It's like product manager or sales revenue. It's not HR. Even though, and, and you know, the, the truth is what happened is I was an early employee at one of the most influential early internet companies called DoubleClick, like I mentioned in the spiel in the beginning. And the CEO of DoubleClick is a guy named Kevin Ryan. He once came over to me. I was a 24-year-old punk. And he said, hey, what are you doing in human resources anyway? And I'm like, well, the things I do is I help to recruit people. That's a, that's a CEO's view of human resources. What the, what the hell do you guys do over there? Yeah. Right. Exactly. What the hell does human resources do? Right. So he's like, well, I do recruiting. I do performance management. I help managers manage their people better, help with communication vehicles, help to look at organizational structure, align strategy and people help with moving people out of the organization, whatever, training, all the other stuff. And he pauses and he's actually, that's all the things that I spend my time on as a CEO too. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. So then I was like, "Hmm, maybe this HR is actually good groundings to become a CEO because as a CEO, it's like all people-based stuff. You're constantly dealing with people stuff. It's all people. Most of your problems are people. Yeah. Everything. So I was like, huh, I'm going to change my plans and become a CEO because it seems like this is good ground. So then I went back to business school. I went to Warden for business school to be able to take on the more typical path, which was, you know, say, marketing and finance. And I worked out of business school, a very atypical place, which is a, a pharmacy chain called Dwayne Reed, 
which is uh, similar to Long's on the West Coast or CVS or Rite Aid. And that, that was atypical also. Sometimes you got to think a little different and good things happen. No, it's great. It's great. So what the, the real question I had about that, because it's, it's an interesting path because you don't hear very many CEOs come from, uh, big companies come from HR. What advantages did it present and what disadvantages did it present coming from HR as opposed to you and I co-founding because we came up with this great product and you become the CEO and I become the CEO because it's, you hear that all the time. Yeah. And of course they have no idea how to be a CEO, their product guys or their revenue, sometimes revenue or whatever. What advantages, big advantages and which dis, what disadvantages did it have? coming from that. Okay, I'll start with advantages. If you ask most CEOs what's more important to success, EQ or IQ, they will definitely tell you EQ, I think, unless, you know, they're low EQ people, then they'll tell you IQ. But I think <laughs> right, then they then they realize they're yeah, they're antisocial. Yeah, they're the they're the antisocial guys. Yeah. There you go. And there are some of those. The ability to influence without authority is a very important skill set in management and in being part of an executive team and also being a CEO. You do have the authority, but if you use your authority, you fail. If you say to someone, the reason why you have to do this is because I said so, you fail. And I can fire you, yeah. And I can, you failed. If you say, let's talk about why this might make sense to do and have a discussion and you're able to influence the person to be able to come up with the decisions on their own and own that decision and be accountable for that decision, then that's the way you succeed. So through human resources, it's about building communication skills. It's about learning to influence people in HR without having responsibility. You're an influencer to the president of the organization, the CEO of the organization. The, you, you would talk to them, but you can't make the decisions yourself. And it's incredibly valuable. The other thing is that HR spans working with people across different functions, tech and sales. And I think one of the things that a CEO really needs to do well is be cross-functional oriented and look at the different points of connection between different functions and how if you have a problem, the reason for that problem is not a sales problem. It's usually a sales problem, product problem, marketing problem, customer service problem. It's multi-focused reasons behind different challenges. And I think HR gives you good grounding for that. A negative for human resources, a couple of things. A lot of it is really more psychological than anything in that you will say something like to yourself, it's self-talk. You'll say something like, well, I'm not a product person, so I'm going to defer this decision to the product people that really know their stuff because I come from a product. Oh, I'm not a salesperson, so I'm going to listen to what the salespeople tell me and do what they tell me. I think as you go off, as you grow in one's career and you work with product and you work with sales, you develop greater confidence, but it's a lot easier to have imposter syndrome when you come from an atraditional background than people who had come from, you know, their direct disciplines. That's interesting. So how often do you do skip level meetings where you just drop into a, you say, what's the CEO doing here? Because it's not a meeting you would normally pop into. So here's my answer. I do a tremendous number of skip level meetings, but they are more one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who report to the people on my team, people report to the people who report to the people on my team. So I have a whole like calendarized schedule where there's probably 30 to 40 different people in the company that I meet with every three months, every four months, sometimes every two months. And I'll have one-on-ones with them, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes, but it's very important to just 
hear about how things are going and never tell. The reason I actually don't jump into meetings. So you don't parachute in. No, I, I think it's dangerous to do so. The only reason to do so is to, but I'll tell you something very important around that, that that's evolved and changed around parachuting in. The problem with parachuting in is junior people in a meeting can hear what a CEO is saying and suddenly say, think that what you're saying is gospel and that we should take direction. Or they could say, I'm getting multiple perspectives and I'm now all confused. No, don't be confused. If I just said something, it's not direction, it's just an opinion, but you have to be so careful about that that you have to be very careful. So if I parachute a meeting, all I would really do is listen. But I don't need to do that anymore. Here's why. Slack is the ultimate tool for a CEO to be able to get exposure to conversations and to sit in on meetings. And it's just, what a game changer. So Slack has really only become more popular in the last five years. And I'm in like 20, 30, 40 different Slack channels. I see everything going on. I see the conversations back and forth. And it is so valuable. I never had that kind of insight before certainly an email and it's really transformed the ability to have for CEOs and other leaders to have more insight about kind of day-to-day -day decision making that happens you know later deeper down in an organization and then the key is not to engage too much but to go to the head of the person and say like hey I see they're making this decision does that make sense kind of thing well, that's interesting it's my my next door neighbor is the head of development for slack so I'll let him know I'm in Silicon Valley so you live next Two doors down is the head of programming for Netflix. It's okay, because <laughs> this, this happens. So you need a, a movie made about your life, you know, like a, a modern day succession starring David Siegel's family. Yeah, well, we'll I'll talk to the Netflix lady, but yeah, Slack <laughs> is, is pretty, pretty cool. So, so you had an interesting relationship with COVID and your company. I'll, I wanna use that as, as the context for how much does luck, good or bad, play in the role of scaling? 80% uh, luck. I think it's majority luck. I really do. I, there's all these different philosophies around how much luck, how much scale, how much hard work. So first of all, number one is, I do have a belief in the following statement, which is luck is hard work. Meaning. I agree. If you work really hard, you could set yourself up to end up being lucky. So for example, I have had seven jobs in my career. I never applied for a job. I've gotten lucky in that different people have reached out to me from my past and said, hey, will you join this company? Or, hey, I heard this company's hiring someone. In the case of WeWork, someone who was on the board of Seeking Alpha, which is the company I was president of, reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to meet Adam Newman? Who doesn't want to meet Adam Newman? You know, crazy man. So Great. just for sport, you want to do that. Just for the stories, right? And of course, when I met him, the first thing he did is give me an introduction to his ice bath and you know that he takes at five o'clock in the morning. So, so, so if you work really hard, you could create situations where there's significant optionality. And what I mean by that is all these different great positive things can come from that. So I think you could work hard to create a situation for luck, but ultimately at the end of the day, lucky things happen, but you could have a higher likelihood of lucky things happen. So for example, not to be too talking about meetup, but... I have to, I'm the CEO, when you get together with lots of people and you meet lots of people, lucky things can happen. As opposed to if you're sitting in your basement, just, you know, watching, playing video games. So I think most of my personal career and in terms of going back to your original question around COVID, 
you know, when Meetup, when Meetup, when COVID hit and we saw every single group in China shut down overnight in late February and then in Italy, and we weren't, we thought we wouldn't survive, thought the company would be shut, would end after 18 years of kind of success. So it's not like a graphics, they were just falling, they were falling like dominoes. Falling, dominoes. Our number of events went down by 80% in, in just one month because everything was IRL, everything was in person. We immediately got together and created a capability to have on, host online events within a week. We started seeing it climb back. But the lucky thing was that COVID ended up being a boom to our business. And this year will be the highest revenue, profit, everything else, you know, for us. Because now online events um, is something we should have allowed in the past. We didn't. Lucky, quote unquote. And now we had ended up with kind of an opportunity to be able to create online events and that's helped to make our product and our business better. Is it fair to say without COVID, you would have, would you have eventually gotten to online events or would you have been, was that so embedded in the culture that, that they were like forbidden? Let me give you an example. So we work at a big conference and our founder, Scott Heiferman, I've been the CEO for about five years. Our founder was the CEO for about 16 years prior, stood up at the conference with a giant ax and he took a VR device and he starts smashing the VR device into little pieces. And he said, Meetup is all about in person. We, turned down, we have turned down in our history millions, tens of millions of dollars by groups that wanted to be online only through our history. And we forbid, forbade them on our platform. So it was so part of our business. But ultimately what, what happened is when we got our team together, I said, what's our mission? Our mission is to empower personal growth through real human connections. Our mission doesn't say, through IRL, it has to be IRL. Our mission is about connections. Our mission is not about in-person. So we could further connections, you know, during this time and uh, we would never have done it. It was, it was just one of the, it was one of these just cultural taboos that we would never have had a basis to be able to change. It's funny, it sounds to me, it sounds to me like religious things where people say, we are never doing that because our religion, and you go, no, our religion says, love your neighbor. It, it doesn't say how, it doesn't say you're not allowed to do it. You go, yeah, what, could you do that? Isn't there room for that? Uh, that's, it's interesting. Yeah, and the diehards were so, I meet up, the employees were so opposed to it too. They were like, if you, they were actually had one, one or two employees threatened to potentially quit because they were so opposed to it. They said, oh, this COVID thing is gonna be done in a week or two. You know, we don't need to change this. Well, that didn't happen. So it all worked out. <laughs> so, so now you're bigger because of it, because you have both branches thriving. Yeah, and we, when we just launched hybrid events, so there's all these events now that are in person and online, so people could do them both ways. So it's oh, so you can do live streaming from a from an in-person event and all that stuff, and have some people that are hybrid, exactly online, some people that are in person. So which, what that does is, you know, it allows people who don't live in a certain geography. Let's say you're the parent of ADHD kids and you are in uh, Kansas City and there's no parent of ADHD group in Kansas City. Well, now there's an online group. You could join the St. Louis one, you could join the New York one, you join the Kuala Lumpur one. So, so it just allows people to find their people irrespective of geography. Yeah, that's interesting. So how much of, how much of that was horse trading or influencing without, because you could have stood on their desk and said, we're going uh, this way or you're fired because we have to. How much of that was you exercising a high risk profile? This is a risky move and we're gonna do this. And how much of it was the HR side or you know, the people side where you said, hey guys, what if? <laughs> On this particular instance, 
Uh, this was a top-down decision, which I do very sparingly and very uncommonly. One of the things I believe is that CEOs need to be an island at times. And if, you're, if you just rule by democracy, you're going to not be an effective CEO. It doesn't work. So you have to know when, you're, when you need to build consensus and when it is actually a mistake to build consensus and is actually very important to be top down. So, you know, Ben Horowitz in his you know, famous book, a Hard Thing About Hard Things, talks about wartime CEO and the peacetime CEO. So in a, when you're a wartime CEO, you cannot be the consensus building HR focused type leader. You have to be a top down decision maker and, and implementer and risk taker. Most of the time, you're hopefully not in wartime. If you're in wartime all the time, then there's a problem. So more often you're that, you're the peacetime CEO and you can build through more consensus, more accountability, et cetera. But that particular example was one where I was, I just said, this is what we're doing and we got to make it happen quickly. Let's get the MVP done in the next you know, few days. Yeah, you didn't have, you didn't have time to clown around and get consensus. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And you did that pivot like in two days. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it was a crazy story. We found some islands in the South Pacific that didn't have any meetup events attached to them because our technology was such that every single event had to be connected to a location. And to rip that out would have taken many months. So we, so without people knowing, all online events were attached to some islands in the South, South Pacific and the back end that no, yeah, the Faroe Islands or something in the South that no one had ever actually heard of. And then we had to figure out how to do time zones. Because we don't have time zones before. If you're in Berlin, you go to a Berlin event. You don't have to think about time zones. So there was a lot of additions that we rolled out. And one of the smart things that we did is we had the head of Zoom training run a session for all of our organizers on how to effectively transition your in-person events to online. So he was like, go on a run and go on a run by yourself. And then everyone come back and drink a beer together and find ways of doing those kind of connections to people. Um, Scavatrons online and you, leveraging different features within Zoom and other uh, platforms. So it was a fun time. <laughs> yeah, going back to the luck, I wonder how much, um, you, you talk about hard work. I've always thought of passive luck and active luck is tied to hard work, but do you find it creates a compound effect where you say, I'm only 5% inherently luckier but it's due to the hard work and 5% over 25 years is an enormous annuity. And people say, he gets all the breaks. He got this job. I don't even know how he got the job. And you go, cause I've done 20 years of staying in contact with close friends and I'm connected to, is it that, or is it? Oh, big time. It's when you say hard work. Yeah, it's compounding because what's the hard work part? Well, the hard work, first of all, it's hard. Cause it sounds, I hear hard. And I think of like, you're in the salt mines <laughs> and it's not bad. What's, it's, yeah. No, it's so I would say luck is smart work is a much better way to put it. Ah, got it. Okay. Um, it's not hard. And what I mean by that is there are simple things that one can do. If you're a people oriented person, like I am to stay in touch with people in some meaningful way. And that, and like we actually talked about it with your son up front, right in the beginning to close the loop, you could have these incredibly deep relationships with someone and see them once a year. Yeah. And you could have also see someone very frequently in, off, in the office have a, a very superficial relationship. So yeah. what I mean by that is smart work is trying to number one, build depth of relationship with as many people as you could come in contact with, you know, Talking about the weather, not way to create and engender a deep relationship. Talking about the meaning of life or family, whatever it is, usually 
a, a greater depth of relationship. So that's number one. And number two, creating these annual rituals or quarterly rituals or episodic opportunities to stay in touch with people is very valuable. Number three is I somehow have in my brain lots of things that people tend to like. So if I'm reading something, I'll forward it to this person because I know that they would like it. Or if I'm watching some show, I'll forward it to that person. And those little messages that you send out, you stay in touch with people. And then that's how amazing, and you don't do it for self-serving pur purposes. You do it because you know that they'd actually enjoy, you know, that particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So luck is smart work is a better way to put it than luck is hard work. But it's, it's joyful work too. You just say, oh yeah, you know, they, they sent me a response and said, oh, this is hilarious. Where'd you find this? Great. Because they would have never found it. You came across it, however you came across it. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's yeah. funny because I go to Israel a couple times a year now. One of my oldest son is based there. And I have a whole group of people in Israel that I see more often than I see who are friends of mine in my city. Because every time I go, I make sure to have a breakfast with this person, a lunch with this person, a dinner with this person. But it's easy to take it for granted when someone lives right near you. You know, in New York, I can see far less often than someone, you know, in Israel who I, you know, have a, a basis for kind of getting together with. We have adult kids and the, the kid we see the least is the one that's 10 minutes away. And we have, and otherwise it's an airplane ride or a four hour car ride, but they have scheduled times and they say, yeah, we haven't seen you guys. We're coming in and they bombard our house and stay for a couple of days. It's, but the guy close by, he, there's no animosity there. He just... There's no reason. Yeah, there's no reason. And so he comes, you know, he comes for holidays and stuff, but everybody comes for holidays. And he just doesn't come over for Saturday night barbecue or anything like that. Just doesn't do it. It's okay. He's living his life and, and he's having a good time. So there's, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. I want to throw, I want to throw a theory at you and get your perspective that a company can only scale at the pace of growth of the CEO and like personal growth. Like if you're flatlining, there's no way your company could scale. Is that fair? I love that. I think it's incredibly fair because the CEO has such a profound impact on the company's culture, which infiltrates every aspect of a company. So it influences all their decisions, what the culture is, influences their revenue, it influences their profit orientation, it influences the type of people that they hire, influences everything. And oftentimes when people say, I hate the company's culture, they're really saying, I hate the company's leadership or the, the company's potentially their CEO, because that's what influences the culture. So to your point, if a CEO or the leadership in a company, the leadership team, because they're both really obviously different and important, are not able to scale effectively because of dysfunctions, which inevitably exist, but are not acknowledged and dealt with appropriately, then the ability for the company to effectively scale is problematic. So for example, if the CEO or leadership team is poor communicators and you try to scale a, a system where there's you know, failing communication processes, everything breaks down and fiefdoms develop and bad decisions get made, bad decisions get made, you know, then that hurts obviously the, the company's financials, et cetera. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. That's great. Last question. It's one of our favorites. Uh, we ask all our guests. If we had gone to your junior high school team, uh, junior high school with a National Geographic film crew that films those uh, nature shows and followed you around for a semester, 
Would we have then gone to Vegas and placed a big bet on, oh, 15 years from now, this is a kid to, to bet on as a CEO or as a star performer? Or would we have said, oh, God, no. Like me, they would have probably bet probably prison time, but... I don't think prison time, but I also for the older audience, remember Family Ties, I was not the Alex P. Keating uh, from, uh, from, from uh, exceptional individual from uh, a young seventh and eighth grader. I was actually quite shy. Uh, I lacked confidence. I was fearful as all hell of public speaking. I couldn't, I was terrified of speaking my bar mitzvah, you know, and, and I was definitely quieter. I wasn't as into sports as some of the other people where I got very into sports kind of a little later on in life. Was sports a currency in your junior high? Oftentimes it's a form of, if you're good in basketball, if you're good in baseball or whatnot, that's a currency. Yeah, very much so. Huge. Yeah, I focused like my kids because yeah. I wasn't like the, the basketball player or whatever soccer player. Like each of my kids are quite talented in, in different sports. And it's because I think uh, in the environment that I had grown up in and the our kids growing up, it, it tends to correlate oftentimes to confidence and confidence will help to correlate to other elements and later success. And like lack of confidence also correlates to other problems that can develop as well. So I definitely lack confidence. And I would say I was a one in a billion shot to be like a CEO at that point in time. It's fun going back to going back to re high school reunions and things like that. Cause you know, there, there's probably a little bit of a surprise there. That's funny. So, so I'm uh, just to follow on, then we'll wrap up the, did the lack of confidence come because you weren't a starter on the basketball team or you weren't a starter on the basketball team because you lacked confidence? No, the, 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 I was, it's an interesting question. I would say the lack of confidence came because I was not a, I was not a, for me, I was not a, a sports player. And a lot of people in my team were in, in my classes were very into sports. And I was on the bottom end of that. And also because for some reason, especially in seventh and eighth grade, when everyone's getting into girls and dating and things, I, for some, I was very nervous around girls. And that also, you know, maybe that had a negative impact on, on, on certainly confidence as well. Uh, it ended up that I went to a very elite kind of seventh, eighth grade class where three of the 16 kids ended up become, becoming Supreme Court justices. So there were 12 of the 16 kids ended up going to Ivy League. That's your only three out of 16, dude? What, what about the yeah, rest of them? Only three. And 12, 12 of 16 went to Ivy League schools. So I didn't realize what like the world was like. And after that, by the time I went to Ivy League school myself, University of Pennsylvania, I was like, my God, this place is the easiest place compared to where I went to high school and elementary school. So I had a weird, extreme uh, basis for comparing myself, I would say, to others that was, was unhealthy and hopefully became healthier over time. And of course, how would you know any different? Because it's just where you went to school. Correct. You just go, yeah, this is what everybody does. You go, no, this isn't what everybody Correct. does. Well, the famous thing around happiness is that happiness is oftentimes, and wealth is about who you surround yourself with. And you could be making one one hundredth of the salary and feel like you're the richest person. And you could be making tremendous salary and feel like you're, you know, you know, making nothing and that your life is problematic. So. It's important to be cognizant of who one surrounds oneself with and how, how much appreciation we should have for our positions in life. Well, that's a great place to leave off. David, thank you so much for appearing today at, on Genius at Scale. Thank you. For our regular listeners, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. 
It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.